Just to follow up on that, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, to reiterate, you support uh, the Medicare for All bill, I think initially co-sponsored co by Senator Bernie Sanders. You're also a co-sponsor yes. on, on it. I believe it will totally eliminate private insurance. Um, so for people out there who like their insurance, well, they don't get to keep it? Well, listen, the idea is that everyone gets access to medical care. And you don't have to go through the process of going through an insurance company, having them give you approval, going through the paperwork, all of the delay that may require. Who of us have, has not had that situation where you got to wait for approval and the doctor says, well, I don't know if your, your insurance company is going to cover this? Let's eliminate all of that. Let's move on. Wow. Hell. Let me tell you something. That was, that was good. That was good. Good answer. I like the answer. Uh, I'm sure, you know, Ty's not going to be happy with me when I say this, but I'm sure that's what she told Hillary Clinton's donors in the Hamptons last summer. You know, hey, guys, we got to just, let's get rid of it. When she met with uh, an executive from Citigroup in the Hamptons uh, six months after she became senator, I'm sure that's what she told them. You know what, guys? I'd love to take your money, but we got to get rid of the private health insurance industry. We just got to get rid of it. So I thought it was a great answer. Obviously, I'm being sarcastic. So a few things. You know, this is where Ty and I tend to disagree on a lot because I love Ty, and he's not here to defend himself in fairness, but uh, he tends to give people the benefit of the doubt where I, I do not because... I look at your actions, not what you're saying now. Barack Obama ran on universal health care uh, and a public option and then gave us, he didn't really fight for a public option. He gave the Republicans whatever they wanted. I mean, Hillary Clinton uh, borrowed Mitt Romney's flip-flops. I mean, Hillary Clinton, when Bernie Sanders pushed her left, she, she flip-flopped so much, she made Mitt Romney look consistent. But I had trouble, and most progressives had trouble uh, believing that Hillary Clinton was actually going to follow through on most of the progressive promises she made because it's not truly what she believes based on the money she took and what she has said in the past. So before I went live today, I actually did some homework. I contacted a few uh, political contacts I have in California, and I said, can you tell me if Kamala Harris, uh, when she was running for Senate uh, in 2015 and 2016, when uh, Medicare for All California the universal health care bill in California uh, was still in play. It had the chance to pass. California is, on paper, the most progressive state in the country. Uh, it passed the House. Uh, the, the governor uh, supposedly was going to sign it. And the House of Representatives, I think his name was Anthony Rendon, blocked it. So did she come out in favor of Medicare for All for California? Did she say anything? I mean, I can't, I looked it up on, uh, I looked it up. I couldn't find anything that she said about that. And uh, I contacted three people I know in California that are politically active there. And they said she, she didn't take a position. Now, in fairness, she was running for national Senate, not California. But I mean, if Medicare for all is what you believe in, if you believe in single payer, then why wouldn't you be leading the charge when you're running to become a California senator for California to lead the nation as an example? for Medicare for all. It's obviously not a question Jake Tapper was going to ask because Jake Tapper stood there like the mannequin that he is. So I, dare I say, you know, listen, I don't want to knock her for 
saying the right position. This gets down to psychology, right? She's saying on paper the right position. But it gets down to psychology. Do you believe her, right? So I'm not going to tell you who to believe. You can believe whoever you want. I mean, I don't know what else to say other than I don't have that much faith that Kamala Harris, if elected president, would actually fight for Medicare for all. That is my opinion, because I don't see anything in her history. She, when she was elected, this is what she said. We can't afford to be purists, Harris said. You have to ask that question of yourself. Are we going to be purists to this resistance to the point that you let these guys go? These guys that she's talking about are Joe Manchin and Heidi Heitkamp. Or can you understand that you may not agree with 50% of their policy positions, but I can guarantee you will disagree with 100% of their replacements policy positions. So that is part of the question. What do we have to do in this movement? What do we have to do in this movement to be pragmatic? So right after she was elected to the United States Senate, she was basically, that's, that's talking to you progressives, uh, eat your broccoli and vote for Joe Manchin and Heidi Heitkamp. And, you know, I'm not an extremist. When Beto O'Rourke was facing Ted Cruz in, uh, in Texas, listen, I, I'm not from Texas, but I said, listen, if I lived in Texas, I would vote for Beto O'Rourke. I mean, I, I would vote for a human snail over Ted Cruz, okay? Uh, I feel differently about national elections. You know, if it was Kamala Harris versus Ted Cruz, I'd vote for Kamala Harris, okay? That's me. Doesn't need to be you, but that's me. But, you know, when you're, when you're saying Medicare for all, well, you're coming to it after Bernie Sanders led that charge. You're coming to it when Bernie Sanders, he was out on the cliff for many, many years when he was called a, basically a communist for advocating for this. And you're coming to it as the political winds change, as it's 70% popular. So I have a problem with that, not because she's a woman, not because she's an exper- uh, uh, not because she doesn't have a lot of experience, she's only been in office two years, but because I have a problem with these Johnny-come-lately progressives. And I worry... Am I going to get obama again? Meaning, am I going to, I mean, I loved Obama in 2008. I, I don't, I'm not embarrassed to say it. A lot of people did. Uh, and I thought he was going to heal the world. But I was, I was very, very disappointed uh, in, in totality. He did some things well, but most of it, I mean, he let bankers off scot-free. We got a Republican health care plan. Uh, we're still on Afghanistan. I mean, I could go through the list. So you have to look at the overall context. And I have a hard time believing that Kamala Harris, while she was running for Senate, did not say, a, say anything about the fight for universal health care in California. So you tell me. You tell me. By the way, Kamala Harris, you know, when you're talking about uh, Medicare for all, well, and, and ending the private health insurance industry, that doesn't exactly square away with you currently. If you read news reports uh, the uh, about two weeks ago, there were news reports, Kamala Harris, Kirsten Gillibrand, Cory Booker were all dialing Wall Street executives over the last few months, seeing if they could get support. Well, sorry to tell that doesn't exactly square away with ending the private health care industry. Let me tell you something. You know, 
Another industry that big banks are invested heavily in, other than pipelines and fracked natural gas, pharmaceuticals. So you're never going to hear this context on CNN. Frankly, you're probably not going to hear it on some other outlets. But this is the context. She could say whatever the hell she wants at a CNN pep rally, because that's what it was. It was a pep rally for her. So in theory, great answer. Do I believe it's going to happen? Uh, no, I don't. I don't. Now, you could, you could say, all right, Jordan, but let's say if, if she got elected, maybe she's not, maybe she's faking it, but she wouldn't go for Medicare for all, but she would fight for a public option, so that's better. Well, let me see what my options are then. But right now, no, I'm not for that. I'm not for that. We need Medicare for all, universal health care, not just a public option. Don't you find it interesting that when Bernie Sanders or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, talks about Medicare for all, you know, Jake Tapper, well, how are you going to pay for that, sir? But I find it interesting, the double standard, because Jake Tapper, when he interviews Bernie Sanders, when he interviews uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, well, how are you going to pay for this thing that helps the, the proletariat? But when he interviews Kamala Harris, I didn't hear that question. Did I miss, did I miss something? Did I miss Jake Tapper asking, how are you going to pay for it? Maybe he knows it's not something she truly believes in. Just saying. So let's uh, play, play the next clip from Kamala Harris that I found interesting. Kyle Koff is a freshman at the University of Iowa What's in Iowa City. What's your name? Kyle Koff. Kyle. Kyle Koff. Uh, he studies political science, and he has a question about student debt. Oh, Kyle. Yeah. Yes. As a freshman college student, student debt is a big concern yeah. to my peers and to me. Yeah. Here in Iowa, we have seen a significant increase in tuition, yeah. mainly due to lack of funding from our state government. What is your plan to make college more affordable and to help student debt? All right. And thank you, Kyle. And thank you for, for being here and for stepping up. And you're giving voice to a lot of voices around our country that need to be um, better heard and understood. Um, first of all, the fact that you have decided that you want to pursue your education and pursue the dreams that you may have is something that should be rewarded. We have a system in place right now where there are so many students like yourself around the country who are preoccupied with the knowledge that they will not be able to pay off those loans anytime in the near future. This is wrong. This is an upside-down system. What we need, first of all, is we need a national priority and, and, and commitment to debt-free college, of which I support. We have got to reform the Pell Grant system to allow you to actually get the loans that you need, but that the government is supplying as opposed to for-profit organizations. We need to get rid of the for-profit colleges that are preying on students like you. I have personally prosecuted, I have personally prosecuted for-profit colleges that take advantage of students like you, promising a job, promising a bright future while taking your money and not giving you anything in return. And then we also have to recognize that we have not fully understood the importance of giving our young people a pathway to be able to pursue their dreams. And that is about debt-free college, it is about student loans, and it is also about really a commitment to the kind of education that we are also offering and having a path toward the education that is going to be about getting the jobs of the 21st century. 
Frankly, in so many ways, our leaders, I think, have fallen short in recognizing that with automation happening, it is real. Technology taking hold in so many places that we have also got to create a path for education that pays attention to what Iowa is doing so well around renewable energies, doing what we need to do around focusing on where you want to be and are we giving you the tools to get there. But student loan debt is something we have got to deal with as a priority. Because when I was going to school, we could graduate and we could pay off those loans and we didn't have to worry like the way you were worrying. And it's wrong. And we are not doing our future. Um, in fact, we're doing our future a great disservice to not fix this problem. Uh, so that was her on student loans and affordability. So uh, here is the assist from Tim Dickinson. I don't know who that is. Oh, he works for Rolling Stone. Okay. So Kamala Harris... Uh, a little bit different. Apparently, uh, from December 18th, excuse me, December 17th of 2018 to January uh, 27th of 2019. So that's uh, about a month. Apparently, uh, tuition-free college has changed to debt-free college. So again, thank you, Tim, uh, for digging that up for us. But, I mean, this isn't even like a flip-flop a couple years later. This is a flip-flop within a month. And, by the way, if you remember the 2016 campaign, uh, free college tuition at a public university versus debt-free college is a very, very different thing. Uh, debt-free college is, you know, I attempted, I attempted to read Hillary Clinton's uh, debt-free college plan, but... I attempted to read Hillary Clinton's debt-free college plan. To tell you the truth, I didn't really understand it. But from people that are experts, uh, Hillary Clinton's debt-free college plan was kind of tinkering around the edges, but not going after the really uh, systematic problem with uh, prices, uh, if, uh, college prices, as well as student loans, which is price gouging. Uh, these universities are allowed to do whatever the hell they want because one of the big secrets here in the United Corporations of America is universities pay the politicians too. A lot of these politicians, some of their biggest donors are college universities and that they pay, pay, pay the, co the, uh, the politicians and then they could, they could hike prices. I mean, what is Harvard nowadays? What is some of the most prestigious universities? 60000 a year? 65000 a year? I mean, when I went to college in 2004, I mean, I got like a little money in scholarship. I think it was 20000 Now my university, which, tell you the truth, is not exactly uh, University of Tampa, not exactly, um, you know, Yale. It's $40,000. It's crazy. I mean, w when I have children, they're not going to a physical college at this point. I, you'd have to work 24-7 for the rest of your life to be able to afford Sending your kids to college or, you know, your, your kids are going to be basically shackled to debt for the rest of their lives. So college-free, you know, debt-free college includes more access to grants. Access, access, access. It's a lot of, it's a lot of access. Debt-free college is not what we need. We need to have the same principles that we have for K through 12. So you pay into the system so your kids can go. Uh, to uh, get an education at public schools. I mean, not it's not free, but at a reasonable rate. 
And then when your kids are out of college, you're still paying those taxes where you live so other kids could go to college. That's how it works. And there's no reason it should have stopped. It should stop into college. And by the way, let's keep it real, folks. Even with a bachelor's degree these days, you're not guaranteed a quality job with a bachelor's degree. Hell, there's people going back to school for master's degrees in finance, in, uh, uh, you know, engineering or, or construction or whatever it is. You're not guaranteed a high paying, uh, great benefits, stable job. So on that, you know, that's the thing I'm talking about, folks. You're going to get CNN saying, oh, wow, I thought she did amazing. I thought she did wonderful. Uh, this, frankly, I mean, there's also some independent outlets out there that buy into a lot of this crap because they have Trump derangement syndrome. But you got to look at, you got to actually look at what they're proposing. And frankly, there's a reason you're changing from free public college in December, like a month ago, to college, debt-free college. Does it have anything to do with who you're trying to get money from? Ty, is that reasonable for me to say? I know I'm not allowed uh, to take on Kamala Harris. Uh, Ty doesn't like uh, me taking on Kamala Harris. She th he thinks I'm doing personal attacks, but I'm not. I I I'm not for debt-free college. It is not the same thing as every single person in this country having the ability to go to public school tuition-free. And by the way, giving students and Americans that access, because that's real access, uh, where they where to so they could go. You you you're investing, and you're gonna have a you're gonna have such a greater payoff in the end, because you're not gonna have students buried in student loan debt. But who who benefits from the student loan debt? Private private companies, banks that have bought into these student loan debts, just like they bought into houses and mortgages. So, you know, a lot of the things she's saying sound wonderful. And by the way, in theory, I'm all for having a, a black woman president, but I'm not gonna just like, you know, cheer because she's a black woman. And I'm not gonna treat her any differently as far as how I critique politicians because I wouldn't be doing my job then. So I think it's very, very, uh, very, very telling that she changed that policy position in one month's time. But, you know, Jake Tapper obviously didn't study up at all because Jake Tapper's not paid to actually challenge anyone. He's paid there to be a mannequin. Senator Harris, since Democrats, Democrats have regained the majority in the U.S. House of Representatives, we've been hearing more about a Green New Deal to fight climate change. You have yet to fully endorse or reject it. Will you fully endorse the Green New Deal tonight? I, I support a Green New Deal, and I will tell you why. Climate change is an existential threat to us, and we have got to deal with the reality of it. We have got to deal with the reality of the fact that there are people trying to peddle some idea that we should deny it, and they are peddling science fiction instead of what we should do, which is rely on science fact. I know what we need to do in terms of so much of what the plan has to be around 
investing in solar, in wind, I'll tell you that, um, and this gets back to also Kyle's point about jobs of the 21st century, the Bureau of Labor Statistics just came out in the middle of last year with a list of the top 20 jobs in the United States for which we're going to see the greatest amount of growth. And it's going to be a function of the fact that we need those jobs to be filled and we don't have the skilled labor to fill them. Number one and number two on that list, installation and maintenance of wind turbines and solar paneling. And the reason it's on that list is because we need those jobs to be created and filled because we need to be dedicated to that kind of work. And that's what a Green New Deal has to include. That's what we have to be about. And, um, and our planet is at great risk. And I think that the fact that we have policymakers who are in the pockets of big oil and big coal don't fully appreciate the fact that we are looking at something that is presenting an existential threat to our country. And listen, all children need to be able to breathe clean air and drink clean water. And we've got to have a commitment to a policy that will allow that to happen for ourselves and our children and our grandchildren. And right now we don't. So that was her on a Green New Deal. On a Green New Deal. So a few things on this. Number one, I thought it was a good answer. You know, not going to lie. I think, I think that was a good answer. Uh, I don't know why she didn't come out for it already, but, you know, she said the right thing. Uh, but you can't start. You cannot start with a Green New Deal or any of that stuff until you call for a ban on fracking. And as of now, Bernie Sanders is the only, uh, he hasn't announced yet, is the only potential candidate that is calling for a ban on fracking. This is not because I've been to a bunch of pipelines and I'm passionate about it. This is because experts, environmentalists, climate scientists say fracking is, is an accelerant on already damaging uh, carbon emissions and other chemicals going out into the air. You cannot talk about a Green New Deal, and obviously Jake Tapper is not going to ask her, but... Fracking is first and foremost, and as far as I know, she is has no she hasn't said anything about fracking. So she could talk about a Green New Deal, but this is as radical technically as saying we're going to end the private insurance industry. Well, you're not going to you know in one full swoop end the private insurance industry. It's not like they're just going to like wave the white flag and be like, okay, Kamala. So fossil fuels are equally, if not more, entrenched. In Washington, D.C., the lobbyist culture, the revolving door culture. So when you're talking about a Green New Deal, you mu- and tell you the truth, I, don't, I, I could be wrong, so correct me if I'm wrong. I have also not heard Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez really laser in on fracking. So fracking needs to be banned because the methane from these natural, these hydraulic fracked gas pipelines Methane is worse for the climate and the environment than carbon uh, carbon emissions. And carbon is, is, we all know, carbon dioxide, how damaging that is. So, you know, I'm happy she's talking about a Green New Deal, yet you can't really, you can't really be, you know, Green New Deal without talking about fracking. The other thing that concerns me, uh, and this isn't, by the way, only about Kamala Harris, but this is just in general. I tweeted this out earlier. Uh, you know, you could say you're for a Green New Deal, but, you know, why is your campaign, why is your super PAC donating to the likes uh, of Joe Manchin 
and Heidi Heitkamp. So this is her super PAC. This is how much money they gave and to who uh, in the 20, uh, 2018 political cycle. Tom Carper, look him up in Delaware. Number one donor to Tom Carper, Dow Chemical, who has, is one of the main corporate uh, polluters out there. Then you got, uh, she's not, in, she lost, but you had Heidi Heidkamp, who loves herself some big oil. You got Joe Manchin, uh, you know, down there, 10,000 uh, Kamala Harris's super PAC gave to Joe Manchin. I mean, Joe Manchin, between the coal mining and fossil fuel money he's gotten. So this isn't only critiquing Kamala Harris, because she's not the only one who does this. Super, uh, certain candidates like Kamala Harris, their super PACs give to other uh, Democrats. But how are you for a Green Neal? How are you talking about the existential crisis of the planet? But you're basically, you know, coordinating or, or funding other politicians that are causing that. Uh, Doug Jones, too. He's only been in the Senate uh, thanks to running against a child pedophile. Uh, but he takes a lot of money from the fossil fuel industry. Uh, Tim Kaine has taken money from the fossil fuel industry. So this isn't, you know, only on Kamala Harris, but you got to look at the numbers. You know, again, these are all very nice answers. These are all very nice answers, but you got to you got to look at the money and you got to look at the context under them. If you're taking you might you not be, you might not be taking corporate fossil fuel pack money, but that doesn't mean you're not taking individual contributions from executives, which Better O'Rourke, which Better O'Rourke, he broke the no fossil fuel pledge because the no fossil fuel pledge organization said he broke the pledge by taking uh, individual contributions from fossil fuel executives. So, you know, you want to say no corporate PAC money. Well, you could still be taking individual money. And this is not, you know, obviously this doesn't make Better O'Rourke or Kamala Harris, you know, the worst people in the world. But put your money where your mouth is. You're either asking for small dollar donations from environmentalists, from environmental groups, uh, or and progressives, or... You're going to say, oh, well, I'm not taking corporate PAC money, but hey, individual executives, can you, can you fund me? And by the way, same thing with the Green New Deal. You, you're, you're not only your super PAC is giving uh, other senators money that take money from big oil, but you're begging Wall Street to fund you. Well, Bank of America, Citibank, Citigroup, Wells Fargo, JP Morgan are all heavily invested in Dakota Access Pipeline, would be invested in Keystone Pipeline, Trans-Pecos Pipeline, Mountain Valley Pipeline, Atlantic Coast Pipeline, Rover Pipeline, uh, Line 3, I mean, the list goes on. They're all invested in these natural gas and crude oil pipelines. So it's not just a straight line, oh, she's not taking fossil fuel money from corporate PACs. Well, you are taking money from banks. And this isn't just, this is not just Kamala Harris. This is not just Kamala Harris, Kirsten Gillibrand, same way, Cory Booker, same way, Joe Biden, same way, Julian Castro, same way. So it's, it's not always a straight line. Hey, look, if they're taking money directly from fossil fuel companies, are you taking money from the banks investing them? Are you taking money from executives and individuals that work for them? This is what I'm saying. I want to bring in Robert John Ford. He's a playwright and composer. His show, Caucus the Musical, has been presented every presidential election year since 2004. Robert? Senator, many Democrats that I've spoken with agree that the primary objective for 2020 
is to nominate the candidate that has the best shot of defeating Donald Trump. Some have also said that given what occurred in 2016 and the current political climate, that a male nominee will have a better chance this time around than a female nominee. Would you please respond to this so that this man has a response ready the next time a man tries to mansplain why a man would make a better nominee? My first response, Robert, is this, which is that the person who presented that point really is not giving the American voters enough credit. They're smarter than that. The people who vote, the people who live in this country are smarter than that. They're going to make decisions based on who they believe is the best leader. They're going to make decisions based on who they believe is speaking truth, who is doing it in a way that gives people dignity, doing it in a way that elevates public discourse as opposed to bringing us to the lowest common denominator and base instincts. That's how the voters are going to vote. And that is going to be the basis upon who will win. And as far as I'm concerned, listen, I mean, in my entire career, I've heard people say when I ran and, and, and ran as the first woman who would win, oh, it's not people aren't ready. It's not your time. Nobody like you has done that before. I haven't listened. And I would suggest that nobody should listen to that kind of conversation. So, thank you. A few things on that. In fairness to Kamala Harris, I thought it was a good answer. I'm not going to lie. I thought that was a good answer from her. But I really played that because, what is this, a fucking pillow party? What is this? Is this a, a serious questioning and challenging of a politician running for president? Or are we having a slumber party? It's absurd. And by the way, as somebody who worked at MSNBC, as somebody who worked for a dark time in my life, at Fox News, uh, all of these questions are pre-screened by CNN. So trust me, CNN, they might have thrown out some questions that they didn't want on their air. But, oh my God, you're wasting several minutes of an already short, I mean, it's not a full hour because they have commercials, to have some guy ask about mansplaining? It's ridiculous. Am I being too cynical? And again, I don't actually have anything, I don't have a problem with her answer. The problem isn't with her. It's why are we wasting time in a town hall debate for basically ass-kissing of the candidate, whether it's Kamala Harris or anyone else? Can somebody tell me that? My question is simple. How do you plan on bringing our men and women home and creating a more uh, peaceful and uh, diplomatic foreign policy? Yeah, well, we need to bring them home immediately, but we have to do it in a smart way. And, you know, I was in Afghanistan just days before the president made his announcement about withdrawing troops. The concern I have is that we cannot lead public policy, and in particular foreign policy, with a tweet. Um, the concern I have is that we have got to understand that, first of all, in Afghanistan, we have lost 2,300 young lives. Over 20,000 lives have received permanent physical injury, not to mention all of the lives of the young people who have been sent to fight this war, 
who are, are dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder and all kinds of other injuries in terms of what they are bringing back. And we have got to be more responsible in understanding that we cannot send our young people to fight these senseless wars and these endless wars. But we have to do it in a way that is also smart. And that means that the commander-in-chief has to read the briefing book, has to, has to consult with foreign policy experts and ambassadors and generals and allies and do it in a way that is smart. Do it in a way that understands that right now in Afghanistan, for example, right when I was there before the, the announcement went out, there was a whole process of reconciliation happening where one of the bargaining chips was exactly that point. And so we need to have leadership in our country who makes the right decisions, which includes bringing our troops back, but do it in a way that is smart and strategic and not on a whim and not by a tweet. Uh, I agree uh, in principle with what she said. I think that uh, I'm a little, little cynical about it only because I, I've heard this before. I've heard this before. Um, you know, I heard this from Obama. We're getting out of Afghanistan. Um, you, you've heard from a lot of politicians. We've we got to bring the troops home. Got to do it. How are you going to do it? Well, I'll tell you later. You know, how long? Six months? You know, a year? How long? Uh, I'll get back to you. Uh, I will say uh, she did vote against uh, the $715 billion uh, defense bill which was passed uh, in the Senate uh, last summer. So this is from June. She, along with uh, Diane Feinstein, Kirsten Gillibrand, Jeff Mark Merkley, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Rand Paul, Mike Lee, voted against the bill. I believe Elizabeth Warren voted for it uh, on the final passage, so I'd have to, I, I'm not positive if she voted for it on the final passage, but she did vote against it on the initial pa uh, passage. So I'll have to get that. My question for you tonight is simple. In a society where nearly one in five children live in poverty, yeah. is the existence of multi-billionaires morally defensible? Well, here's, let's just say this. We have had policies in this country, at least in the last two decades, that have disproportionately benefited the top 1% to the exclusion of working families. We have a situation in our country right now where just recently this administration passed a tax bill that benefits big corporations in the top 1% to the exclusion of supporting working families. And that is unconscionable. And you are exactly right. We have babies in America today that are on the verge of starving. We have families that cannot pay their bills. In fact, one of my proposals is that we address this inequity around what, I, what has been termed what would be one of the most significant tax cuts for middle-class families in generations. And it is what I propose. I call it the LIFT Act. But what we would do is for families who are making less than $100,000 a year, they would receive a $6,000 tax credit that they could receive $500 a month understanding that we have so many families in America right now that are a $500 emergency away from complete financial catastrophe. Let's also understand that we've got to have economic policy in this country that understands that right now it's not working for working people. Right now in America, 
In 99% of the counties in America, if you are a minimum wage worker working full time, you cannot afford market rate for a one bedroom apartment. That is absolutely unconscionable. And so we've got to correct it. And part of it is that people at the top 1%, people who are making $10 million a year, who have $50 million a year, they need to pay more taxes. to do is correct course, because for too long, the rules have been working against working families and working for the benefit of the top 1%. We have to correct course. Oh, boy. So, listen, am I against uh, a $500 tax credit a month? No, I'm not against it. Uh, do I think as if that is your main overall economic plan, uh, is that enough? No, it is not. That is not enough, not nearly enough. You know, $500 a month is helpful. It could be very helpful, to, especially to the poorest of the poor. Uh, it could be helpful to anyone. But that's not, that is, that, that's an economic policy uh, that is complementary. But if that is your main economic policy, taxes, we've been having this same tax debate, uh, basically not for, uh, not for 20 years, as she said, for 30, 40 years. She's been talking about the lopsided nature of this economy. That's we've been. This has been basically going on forty years since Reagan, and maybe even a little bit before that. So, uh, an extra five hundred dollars a month, you know, that's kind of close to like unemployment insurance, right? So, five hundred dollars a month is not going to, uh, in a, in a dramatic, radical way, lift people out of poverty. $500 a month is not going to dramatically lift people, you know, from living paycheck to paycheck. $500 a month, honestly, might just go finally for to help people pay off the mountains of debt they have, but it's not going to enriching their lives. It's just chipping away. This kind of argument is not is not addressing the underlying problem, which is there are not enough actual jobs that pay real wages with real benefits. There are also, which I didn't hear her talk about during this town hall, has been the decimation of labor unions in this country. You know, when you look at it, the overall problem in this country, decimation of labor unions, she didn't address that. The jobs being sent offshore to China, Mexico, and all the other countries around the world, so that Apple and Walmart and, uh, and, the, and, and all the, uh, and GM, can basically get away with murder and, you know, paying for foreign labor. She's not, she's not addressing that. So $500 a month. Yeah, it's nice. I'm not going to argue against an extra $500 a month, but that doesn't help the people who have been laid off or their industries and their jobs being sold to foreign countries. That doesn't, that doesn't change the game dramatically for those people. So, you know, that's, I'm just keeping it real. It's not, that's not enough of a plan. Maybe she'll come up with a more ambitious economic po policy. But as far as I can see, a $500, uh, extra $500 a month, is that, what you, is that what you, the audience, needs to help you stop living paycheck to paycheck? Or is that money going to be spent in a minute paying off debt and student loans and medical bills? So, so again... 
Is it is it a bad thing? No. A tax credit for the middle class, increasing taxes on the wealthy is a good start. But I think too long in this country, we've allowed the oligarchs and the politicians to distract us by, by frankly saying it's a t about taxes. Amari Jr., uh, five real, is that real from Brazil? Happy with Bolsonaro, big president. I got to disagree with you. Uh, disagree with you there. I think he's a maniac, in my opinion. But I think uh, you know we we've been distracted just merely by taxes. Taxes going up or going down are not going to fix the systematic problem with this country, the systematic economic rigging in this country, and that rigging is the money in politics, the corporate corporate influence, campaign finance reform, Citizens United, the destruction of labor unions, automization, and zero regulations on corporations being able to offshore your jobs offshore. It should be illegal to give tax cuts to corporations for them then to pay themselves back in stock buybacks. That's giving free money to oligarchs. No, 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 no. We need to give be giving money with strings attached because you want to know something. If you're giving $500 to middle class people, you know what they're going to do with it? Spend it right away back into the economy. Unfortunately, it's probably the mo majority of that $500 probably not going to go back into the economy. You know where it's going to go? To paying off their already massive bills piling up of debt. Thank you. Uh, so that's what I think of Kamala Harris's town hall. I try to be fair. Uh, I'm not a Kamala Harris fan, but I, I don't want to just, you know, distort anything. So I tried to be fair. She said some things that I like. Unfortunately, when you look at the context, when you look at her history, when you look at the fact that she did not advocate for single payer in California, when you look at the fact that she takes money from banks, when you look at the fact that she's for a Green New Deal, but she's not banning fracking, uh, when you look at the fact that she's for a Green New, uh, a Green New Deal, but she's still taking money from Wall Street, Wall Street that's invested in these pipelines, this is what's wrong with our political journalism in this country. We just look at the answers as theater. We react, and the majority of pundits and corporate journalists that cover campaigns, they don't actually address the conflicts of interest from these politicians, the gaping holes in their answers, the context of, wait, she's saying she's for this, but what about her past record? They just say, oh, she really presented herself well. Oh, I think she'll face Trump. She'll max, she'll uh, line up with Trump really well. It's it's all about, it's all theater. It's all, it's all basically like, um, it's like they're judges, you know, at a, at a competition. And they're not offering you the context and the important information you, you need about their records to make an informed decision. One more thing. One more thing. One more thing. Did you notice what was not asked by CNN? How in the world do you have a town hall with Kamala Harris and you don't ask, hey, Kamala Harris, why when you were Attorney General of California and your prosecutors under you investigated Steve Mnuchin's One West Bank for a full year and found he had multiple violations to foreclosure law including not giving enough notice to those he was foreclosing on and other violations. And your prosecutors recommended to you 
prosecuting Steve Mnuchin. Why is it that that was announced? Could it have anything to do with CNN's former parent company, Time Warner, being Kamala Harris's number one donor? To be clear, individuals from Time Warner, not Time Warner, the company, but individuals who work for Time Warner, who donated to her 2016 Senate campaign to the tune of $127,975. So I'm highly doubtful, I'm highly doubtful that 639 average worker bees who don't make a lot of money at Time Warner donated $200 to Kamala Harris, because that's how much it would have been. If, if 639 people who work for uh, Time Warner donated $200 to Kamala Harris' Senate campaign, that gets you to 127975 And the FBC, the, the minimum donation amount is $200 that you have to actually file with the FEC. Or the candidates, excuse me, have to file with the FEC $200 donations. So do you really think 639 average worker bees not making, you know, big, big bank money at Time Warner. We're like so inspired by Kamala Harris's campaign that they donated. 